I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And so today, we're you know, there's a number of IPOs coming up. Uh, some IPOs have already happened, and some IPOs are about to happen. And uh, I want to dive into the business model relative to the valuation. And we have a few different examples here, uh, which which we're going to discuss. And the first of which is um, Palantir. So I've spoken about Palantir before on the show. Palantir valuation. Okay. So Palantir, it's not a platform business. It's a linear business. If anything, it's kind of like a tech-enabled service provider. Um, they are really good with uh, they're really good with big data. They're really good with data science. They're really good with you know how they are uh, digesting bunch of data from a bunch of different sources and then producing intelligence on that, which is why some of their biggest customers are uh, government agencies like the DOD and the NSA and um, CIA and, you know, actually a lot of the agencies that I was just um, talking about on the last episode, a lot of these agencies that impede on our civil liberties, um, yeah, they help those agencies and their technology probably helps those agencies impede upon our civil liberties. That said, I actually still really like Palantir, not even from a business model standpoint, which which it's not a platform, so I obviously don't love the business model as much as I would if it were a platform, but I like Palantir because Carp, the the one of the one of the founders and the CEO, I've I've shown his interview on the show before, um, where he talks about supporting the US government. Now the guy has a little bit biased because those are some of his biggest customers, but I, I like the fact that um, he has not been afraid to support working with U.S. agencies to, to, to bring these new technologies, which are very important for our uh, Department of Defense and other uh, military and, and spy agencies to have this tech when other large U.S. tech monopolies, which are platforms, have actually steered in the other direction to not work with these U.S. agencies. So I appreciate Palantir. From a patriotism standpoint, um, and from their willingness to work with these agencies, uh, they also work with other corporates and and enterprises. I actually think that's probably a nice tailwind for them. The fact that you actually have a lot of the U.S. tech monopolies uh, reticent to work with um, the U.S. government in you know in ways that I think they should be working with them. But anyway, that's besides the point. Let's look at uh, Palantir's valuation. So but Palantir, uh, right now their stock is around $9.50. Uh, that puts them at a market cap at, at about, um, you can see it at about a little under $16 billion. The interesting thing with that valuation is that it's actually the valuation that they had six years ago. So if you rewind the clock on Palantir, I've been following them. Now remember these articles, look at this article from 2015. Palantir has raised $880 million at a $20 billion valuation. This is December 2015, so it's the end of 2015. But uh, farther down in the article, it says here, Palantir valued at $20 billion is up from $15 billion in 2014. So they're pretty much back at where they were six years ago. 
there's there's a lot of people have opinions on why that is, but at the end of the day, this is a linear business. At the end of the day, this is actually a strong services business with technology that is enabling these services, but they're providing services, and that is a big part of their revenue. Tech-enabled services, but services nonetheless. Here's another article, a more recent article. Uh, Palantir's $20 billion valuation and a bigger problem, it keeps losing money. Uh, there's our boy Alex Karp right here on the left with the eccentric hair. You know, this company tried to IPO at roughly $20 billion, um, but ultimately they've, they've sunk. They, 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 they're, uh, where, from where their stock opened at, which um, it, it never really made it to that. They were trying to get back to that $20 billion valuation. But if you look at some of the, you know, there's a lot of investors here that now technically uh, they're underwater. I don't exactly know what kind of like dilution preferences and so on and so forth that some of these investors, even though they might invest in a $20 billion valuation, they can try and carve out some protections where um, the employees get crammed down and, and the investors, uh, you know, use that to help make themselves made whole. Uh, so, you know, you might see, oh, big IPO for Palantir. Um, Alex and the team are, you know, just rolling in it. I mean, they've done well for themselves, but at the same time, um, this actually isn't the crazy success story it, when you look at their valuation that you might expect just looking at the surface of it and, wow, all, look at all these companies IPOing. They must be doing really, really well. So when you look at their uh, financials here, I mean, this is the abridged version from Google, um, but roughly $250 million in revenue, and they're losing uh, $100 million in one quarter on that business. It doesn't get much prettier when you rewind the clock on, um, on these financials. So you, how does a business that's losing hundreds of millions of dollars every year and has maybe roughly a billion dollars uh, in revenue, yeah, not even, um, justify even even at that rate, a $15 billion valuation, all right? I mean, kind of seems pretty high. I think, you know, they, they, they have done a good job branding themselves as this kind of deep tech, big tech, big data, tech-enabled service provider. Um, I love Alex. I love the company. I love that they support uh, U.S. agencies and, and U.S. Uh, government, military with these contracts and their technology. However. Um, I think it's overvalued, even at the fifteen billion dollar uh, um, valuation which they have. Even though they have very fast growing revenue, um, it just is a lot harder for me to see the the path to profitability on a linear business, um, which is making a lot of services revenue when you're losing that much money on your top line. Um, I'm sure they have a good story around it. That's my read on the company. So, next company, Opendoor. Opendoor is, we've actually covered Opendoor many times on the show. Uh, Opendoor is also a linear business. So, uh, despite this article, these articles, right? I mean, they love to just throw around these, they love to throw around the marketplace word. Here's CNBC. Not even going to try and pronounce Chamath's last name. But anyway, 
his SPAC is going to acquire Opendoor, an online marketplace for buying and selling houses. This is incorrect verbiage, Leslie Picker from CNBC. Incorrect. Uh, they're not a marketplace. They are a linear reseller of houses. Doesn't mean you can't have a good business. Doesn't mean you have a bad business. It's just not a marketplace. It's not a platform. They buy houses and then they do some fixing up on them and then they resell them. They are a reseller. They're a reseller that does a little fix up on the house. They use big data. They use technology to source the best houses and and you know and look at the market and and see which are the right houses to buy and when they put some money into them to fix up the house and then they have technology that streamlines the whole you know buying and selling process like transferring titles and all that kind of stuff which is is actually somewhat time intensive and labor intensive they have process and and tech for that uh, but at the end of the day their business is to sell the houses at a higher price than what they bought them for plus whatever money they put into the house to fix it up we spoke about Open Door um, because they have the partnership with Redfin, which is which is an actual platform in the real estate industry, uh, connecting buyers and sellers, agents and buyers, um, like a Zillow. And so Zillow also a platform, Zillow in Plat, and Zillow had Zillow offers, um, which is basically the same thing of Open Door, right? It's 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 the linear model, right? It's saying. I'm a platform, Zillow or Redfin. I have all the data on what's what's what people are selling and buying. And I'm going to be able to find uh, good houses, offer those homeowners offers to buy the house, fix it up, and then resell it. And because I have the best data as the platform, I should be able to make really good margin on this linear buying and reselling activity of houses. That is the thesis for Zillow doing Zillow offers, which they paused uh, with COVID. Opendoor similarly has, they had to take out a bunch of debt uh, in March, despite all of that. And, uh, um, you know, you would have thought that home prices would get hit pretty badly in COVID. Um, and I think actually what we've seen, depending on where they own houses, but I think most of their houses were actually in areas, um, you know, suburban areas around, around a metropolitan center. So actually what you've seen because of COVID, you've seen a flight from the urban uh, city to suburbia. Um, here in Fairfield County, outside of New York City, Fairfield County is popping. Homes are flying off the shelf. Homes are getting listed and literally selling the same day. People are just fleeing big cities. And so you have this huge flight to suburbia, um, which actually means that you know, maybe if they had held on to some of that inventory that they had going into COVID, they 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 probably could have made an even better margin on it. But what's interesting is, so this company apparently, Open Door, uh, is valuing itself at four point eight billion dollars, which they at their last fundraise was valued at three point eight billion dollars, and that was um, in. Uh, February of 2019. So they're adding about um, you know, a little under a third, you know, another billion dollars to their valuation. Uh, they raised $1.5 billion in debt in uh, March of 2019. 
and and they'll use that debt to finance a lot of their acquisitions, right? Because I'm buying the house and then I'm reselling it. So they'll be able to use that debt to help flip these houses. They're basically just flipping houses, right? So they had a $1.5 billion line uh, back in March of 2019. They raised um, $300 million in equity capital back in uh, February of 2019 at a a post valuation of $3.8 billion. Now rumored to be uh, going this reverse merger of SPAC is, you know, if you want to think about what a SPAC is, SPAC is basically an entity that um, is listed and then it is going to acquire um, a, well, you can have SPACs that uh, basically are here to acquire private companies and then make them public. The reason why you do that is because you can expedite and fast track a lot of the scrutiny and filing requirements that would go into doing a normal IPO uh, or direct listing process. So by doing this uh, with Chamath SPAC, Opendoor is still going to raise capital for the business, similar to what you would be doing if you were accessing uh, and doing an IPO. You're raising equity capital, you're selling shares on the public market. This is saying the SPAC is basically going to finance the, the the capital raise and the SPAC is buying the business and then listing those shares publicly. Um, and Opendoor gets to still get capital and then sidestep a lot of the traditional disclosures and reporting. I mean, you still have to have disclosures, you're a public company, but you don't go through the same process of needing to get you know banks and other investors to uh, bankroll your IPO. So it's not that traditional kind of uh, roadshow IPO model, which for some companies can make sense for them. Airbnb apparently was was trying to be um, or was was being approached by Bill Ackman's SPAC to to do something similar with Airbnb and help Airbnb go public in this model. Um, the other nice reason why a lot of these companies want to get public, um, even if they don't want to need or want to raise a lot of capital, that's where you see companies entertaining direct listings, which is actually going to be the topic of our next company. Uh, But direct listings are where the company says, well, you know, I don't actually need to raise new capital, but I would like to give my investors, my shareholders, my employees that have options liquidity. And so now it's basically just saying you're going to do a direct listing and now the shares can be traded on the stock exchange. So you're bringing liquidity to your existing shareholders. And um, you could do a fundraise in the future. You could issue new shares and, and then basically sell stock to raise capital in the future once you have done a direct listing. But in the direct listing model, you're not actually raising new capital in that process. You're really just kind of accessing the public markets and providing liquidity to your existing shareholders. There's also a lot less fees on the direct listing. The investment banks, they take their pound of flesh when they take you public through a traditional IPO process. You know that saying? It's like you buy a Range Rover and the Range Rover comes with nice luggage in the trunk and then you hit yourself in the head and you're like, damn, I just paid like 5X retail value for that luggage. I didn't really need that luggage. I didn't really want that luggage. Damn. That's the feeling with the IPO and fees, but just in a much bigger way. 
instead of it being luggage in the back of your fancy Range Rover, it's now private jets. And they're, the banks are flying you around on private jets, whining and dining you. Oh man, this is so cool. I'm the CEO flying around on private jets and meeting with all these investors. Believe me, you're paying for that private jet. You're paying 5X or more for that private jet and all the private jet trips and all the other things that happen in the IPO process. The investment bank isn't just giving you free private jets. That money is coming from somewhere and it's coming from the exorbitant fees the investment bank is charging you. Anyway, let's get back on topic. Um, back to uh, Open Door. Yeah, that's what we we're talking about. $3.8 billion. So they're adding another billion dollars to the valuation. That's at least the plan. Things can change, but another linear business and actually a linear business that you you might have thought at, at first blush would be hurt by COVID. I actually think there could be um, the opposite here where you actually have these tailwinds that are, um, you know, that that are that have been brought about by COVID with with people moving to suburbia. So this could be interesting and I actually think it could be a really strong linear business. We've seen this in cars where uh you have big businesses, public businesses. I think Vroom is, might be a good example of this, where they are uh, buying and reselling cars, right? You buy a car used, you might fix it up a little bit, and then you resell it. In these massive industries where just, I mean, the car industry is a trillion-dollar industry, the housing industry, probably bigger than that, massive industries, um, all you're saying is, I'm just going to use digital and tech and data, and I'm going to optimize a reselling function on one sliver of that market. And even though it's a small sliver of the market, it's a trillion dollar market or more. And if I optimize that sliver of the market, um, I could have a multi-billion dollar business. I think that, you know, one example of that in cars would be Vroom and now, you know, Open Door being kind of the example of that in housing. So two interesting models here. Uh, linear doesn't mean bad business, but important to understand the difference uh, when you look at their multiples, their ability for you know their their profitability path, and all these kinds of things, defensibility, all that fun stuff. So let's look at Roblox. Roblox is a very cool company. Many people probably don't know what Roblox is, so it's a it, it is a little bit challenging to understand, but. Roblox was valued at $4 billion um, back earlier this year, in February of this year. Actually, we've, we've spoken about Roblox in March. Shortly after this fundraise, I, I started to cover Roblox. Um, they raised $150 million from Andreessen. Andreessen Horowitz loves platforms. Andreessen loves platforms, and they know platforms. And they were big on the platform business model potential of Roblox. Roblox is a gaming platform which allows uh, game developers to make games on top of the gaming engine that is Roblox. Last year in, in 2019, Roblox paid out $100 million to developers. These are small developers, teams with uh, less than 20 person teams based on over $500 million in user-generated uh, content-based revenue. So in, let's see, September of last year, uh, they launched this thing called The Marketplace, which allows developers to monetize not just their games, but their assets, uh, plugins, vehicles, 3D models, terrains, and items they make for the game. So 
Roblox is trying to kind of be, do you ever see that movie Ready Player One where you have a universe and you have your avatar and you can go into all these different worlds, all these different maps and you have different mechanics in the maps and all these different things going on in the maps. That's kind of what Roblox is trying to get at is that like metaverse is is what some people have used to describe it. A partner at Greylock, an investor in Roblox said, given the social dynamics and engagement we're seeing, there's a possibility where Roblox becomes the largest social experience in the world. It's going to that kind of metaverse um, vision. The David George, the general partner from Andreessen said, what gets us really excited and where we see the most upside is in the long-term vision. Uh, so this was investing in February. The company had been around for many years at this point. It's not a small company, but that long-term vision, we think there's a real chance for Roblox to become this metaverse, referring to a shared virtual world as described in, oh, look, yeah, works of fiction like Ready Player One. So in August uh, of this year, it is now announced that Roblox has over 150 million monthly users and will pay out $250 million to developers in 2020, that COVID bump also helping Roblox uh, quite well. So these developers, right, are building games, are building experiences on top of the Roblox gaming platform. Uh, but Roblox is trying to have all of these different worlds be connected, different than, you know, other uh, gaming technologies, and I won't call them platforms because it doesn't fit our definition of the word, but gaming uh, technologies that allow you to make games using their gaming engine. Or Roblox is trying to do is say, use this technology to build your game, but your game is a game inside of the game, right? Your game is being accessed by our network of users and players. So not only developer, am I going to help you uh, make a game? but I'm going to help bring you users, right? Um, this is kind of like a missed opportunity for if you look at um, Stadia, Google Plays, kind of like gaming initiative and, and also Apple, uh, you know, a missed opportunity here to try and bring this kind of connected uh, game of games together. I really love this, this Roblox opportunity. Um, I think it's something that is probably very hard for the average investor to grasp, but there's absolutely platform dynamics here. Um, just in a very different way, are they coming through and being manifested? But if you look at the numbers and if you look at this uh, developer community and if you look at the usage that they're getting and the stickiness and the growth uh, pre and post COVID, like a 3x user engagement bump uh, from pre COVID to now post COVID, 50 million to 150 million monthly users. I mean, this is substantial. And now they are basically, the, the story with Roblox is that um, they're preparing to go public. Um, they were last valued at $4 billion, but they're saying that might double the valuation. So there might be $8 billion. And they're weighing whether to go public through uh, an IPO or a direct listing from what we were just talking about before. Either way, you know, I think there's a lot of value in having liquidity and having the access to public markets, especially with the tumultuous uh, period of time that we're in these days. So, and not only, I mean, they're just on a, a huge growth streak um, that is just kind of accelerating what was already very strong growth pre-COVID. It'll be very interesting to see how, um, see how this all comes together. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. 
I hope you enjoyed joining us today and I'll talk to you again next week.